This is Shaka Wart Speak. <laughs> you know what I hate? What? I hate the Eagles. <laughs> is that always, how we're starting this I've right always now? had. Is this our episode we're starting? <laughs> I don't know. It might be. I we'll see how it I works. think we're doing it. This is it. Um, this is Shaka Wart Speak, by the way, and we're talking about why we hate the Eagles. Yeah, Go I, ahead, I, I, I have no reason except the fact that I just always have. Do you like Creedence Clearwater? Dude, some of it, all right. But I, I, I like a little bit of Creedence. I, I love some CCR, but when when CCR. it comes down to it, there's a few songs where I'm just like, I don't know if I can. Yeah, you know, born I mean, on the bayou. <laughs> it's hard not to like, you know, some some Fogarty. through the jungle. Yeah, I mean, Sorry. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's something about something about the Eagles, and I think what it is is like, you know, they've been on tour for like I don't know since like the 1870s. It feels like yeah, like forever. Yeah, like have they stopped touring? Yeah, I think they are. They are on an endless tour van, I like mean, a it's, tour van. It's it's the like Eagles tour van. It's like uh, it's like their career and the movie Speed have matched up. Where yeah. they're like, we can't slow the bus beyond fifty, yep. below fifty, or it's going to blow up. So we I've, have to stay on. Yeah, tour. I think they they're matter of fact. I think don't quote me on this. I think their tour van never stops. And they just, like the A-team, they just jump out of the van and they tumble, you know, off to the side of the road with their, with their gear and start playing. Dude, it's fantastic. Yeah. I just had the, like this freeze frame in my mind yep. of them jumping from yep. a... It's amazing. Um, but you're, yeah, you're welcome. It's just like, I don't know, when you're like the, the snotty teenager yeah. and you're like listening to music and you've got, you've got it all together, you know the good stuff. Yeah. And then you see like your friend's parents like going to Eagles concerts and yep. coming home with like, you know... Eagles tour 1999 t-shirts yeah, yeah, you're yeah. just like recycled recycled stuff from the 90s yeah yeah recycled tour gear <laughs> like they're like we haven't sold these out yet I mean I don't I don't you know me I I like music all kinds but if we're just talking about what we don't like I don't like Aerosmith yeah the only thing I liked with Aerosmith um well there's two things one of them doesn't sound like Aerosmith they sound much more like Led Zeppelin yep and the old other one, Aerosmith is not too bad and the other one they're with a rap group yeah, and see, I never, I never, I mean, I was a Run DMC fan, and I never could really get all the way. I mean, I was, I got the tape. Mm-hmm. I watched, I mean, I had Run DMC's prior tape. I just never fully, I liked it, but I something was off. And, you know, I was listening to rock. Like, I, I couldn't put my, I couldn't put my I mean, finger on it, though. Trigger warning here. Uh, that's yeah. because it's the worst thing Run DMC ever did. I agree. But it's the best thing that Aerosmith ever did. The second worst thing <laughs> might be when they did the Christmas album, but I love it anyways. <laughs> I had forgotten about that yeah. album. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, there's there's a nostalgia factor there, but that's about it. The other band that I don't like <laughs> is Rolling Stones. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh, I, dude, I'm gonna it, lose so much credibility, dude. It doesn't stop me from like doing the like uh, Mick Jagger rooster walk around yeah. my house when the song comes on. I've seen you do that. <laughs> it won't be the last time. It won't be You're welcome. Last. I mean, I'm I'm just saying, like, I like songs, but if I had to be like, you know, so of all the bands, like, I I just did, I love the Doors. I mean, the Doors were legit, man. And yeah, so I just I like the Doors. I actually like CCR. I like a lot of songs. I don't like all. I don't like all of anybody. I love Neil Young, mm-hmm. uh, not all, but a lot. Yeah, like so. Like I have my, I don't have my. I'm never really a unanimous person with very few folks. So I guess, but as time has gone on, just like. They made some good music. I think Led Zeppelin is great. Oh heck yeah! So like I don't. I, I mean, pretty much like I'm, that's an entire catalog of work. That I'm like, yeah. Solid. See, so I I guess if I'm identifying myself, I'm like I like the Doors. I like Led Zeppelin. Yeah. 
Um, I will of, say of early Rolling Stone stuff I like better than the there's some stuff. yeah there's that's the thing is there's some good songs yeah but um, I think I might be a hater I just think I might be a a, a music hater more than I, I I'm realizing this right now this is weird yeah what I so like because if I like line up all the greats mm-hmm. I know you love the Beatles so don't 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 shoot me the that's Beatles uh huh there's songs I I like there's a lot of songs I just don't like that's fair. But but I never say this to anyone because I can be objective in recognizing the tidal wave influence that they were. Oh, tidal wave influence. It's like if you're not, you know, every band goes through a Beatles. If you're if you're worth your salt, you seem like you pass through the Beatles. Or yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> um, but when I like look at all the the arguable greats, mm-hmm. there's just holes for all of them. Which just might mean that I'm a hater. I don't <laughs> Which know, man. I, I think it means that, like, you know, there's a <laughs> there's a reality to the fact that, like, we're not we're not knocking it out of the park every time we do something. Yeah, I think like, that's part. I mean, of when you when you make, right. you're gonna yeah. you're gonna make that's some right. duds. Yeah, and, I, and I, I do think that's part of it. Is I do think that, um, you know, you were when you look at a lot of these bands, they were able to produce a lot of work. Yeah, rapidly. And, you know, you're like, oh, the Beatles were really only to get it like six years. Or something. The yeah. Doors were to get it like five or six years. Yeah. That's not a long time at all. Not at and, all. You know, and then you have like bands now and it's like, and that's the thing. You have bands like the, um, you know, what bugs me about, okay, so what bugs me about bands like Rolling Stones and Aerosmith is they've be kind of become parodies of themselves. Mm. And I think there's just a time to call it quits, perhaps. And I think maybe that's what I, I struggle with. So, like, even Red Hot Chili Peppers, I'm like, hmm, is it just time? You know, there's something yeah, yeah. weird when you're, like, Keith Richards still looking like, I don't know. I don't know. I This is really, really an unreflective gut level me, it, you know, putting myself out there in a non-critical way. This is just feeling talk. Well, it's, and it's one of the, it's like the question, uh, Jack Black's character in High Fidelity asks, right? He's like, "Is it better to burn out quickly or fade away?" It's a great. That's a great question, man. So I'm trying to think of who who really uh, who's done it well, and um, I'd have to think about it for a minute. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think well, I, yeah. You know, I think one of the things is like, uh, you know, um, who who does it well? I think corresponds really well with me to the the people who are like in pursuit of the craft, yeah, and haven't like said, well. The style sells. No, I think you know that's exactly I mean? like right. Like, yeah, oh, we've that's we've right. become a meme of ourselves. Don't you know? quote me on this. Yeah. So like, so like, I I think I saw something Nora Jones was doing, and I I thought it was interesting because yeah. I was like, I think there's a way of maturing up through music that allows you to grow out of stylization, and so like you you don't command the same audience, but you make quality music. So I'm not opposed to getting old and making quality music. I think it's weird when you hold on to a style that was more fitting for a time that you're no longer living. Cause I think part of what it does is it makes a lot of what you were saying meaningless because if it was uh growth inducing, then you ought to have grown past it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think cause I love Jeremy Innick. I don't ever want uh, Jeremy Innick to not make music and he's in his, you know, mid forties or whatever. And I'm like, but, or, you know, like if Neil Young makes a song, like I'm kind of cool with it. Cause like, I just feel like, the 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 form of music or the, in the genre, there's some kind of age correspondence there. Mm-hmm. You know, like when Rod Stewart started doing like crooner music, I wasn't mad at him. Yeah, because I I feel like you know 
trying to write if you want my body and you think I'm sexy as like a 70 year old doesn't quite work the same way, you know? So it's like, you got to think like you mature into these, these spaces where your, your insights are different. Like you want to hope that people get mature as they get older or not. Yeah. And I think, you know, you you do see that in a lot of, a lot of artists. I know that Mm -hmm. we share, we share an affinity for Beck. Yeah. And I, like if you try to say like, well, what kind of music does Beck make? And it's like, Beck makes music. Yeah, he makes music. Because I have no idea where he's going to go with his next mm-hmm. album. You know, I mean, it could be anything from his, like, you know, weird, kitschy pastiche stuff he started Everybody's with. going to go sometime. <laughs> and then you get to, like, his, like, slow-mo ballads. Yeah. And then you get to, like, his recent album that's all, like, electronica, 80s, like, yeah. synth music. You know, and it's like, and, and I don't have a problem with that, but a lot of people hate on that because they're like, well, what what does he do? And it's like, yeah. well, he doesn't he doesn't paint himself into a box. He's an artist. And so I think, you know, it's, a, you know, this idea of like growth and change and adapting, mm. adapting and like yeah. really digging into the trade. Yeah, there's growth and then there's like just changing your costume. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, then it becomes a, a question of like, you know, with, with all of that, there's kind of an underlying conversation of like authenticity yeah. and realness and things mm-hmm. like that. And so you might even say that it's easy for in those situations for us to either say somebody is an imposter mm-hmm. or maybe even ask the question of like, do they feel like an imposter? It's the old Scooby-Doo. You take the mask off and it's old Mr. Wilburton. That's right. At the pet store and he's trying to take over the island. You didn't That's even right. know it because he was pretending to be a werewolf. If it wasn't for you dang kids. You dang kids. Yeah. So I think, you know, it, 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 for whatever reason, we have ser- uh, serendipitously run into our topic for a day. Boom. Which is nice, which is... Um, Thinking about this, before. which is not premeditated. This no, is actually not at all. Entirely, <laughs> it just press recording. This is the result happens. of not sleeping at night. I didn't sleep, so um, I had way too much coffee before this morning. I'm about to have coffee right now, so I'm just going to be honest. Uh, if you hear strange noises, it's because I'm opening my coffee. Up. <laughs> um, so there's a clanking noise, there's a twist cap. It's a yeti. It's a yeti. So if Yeti, you want to sponsor us, you, That's right. you help make my coffee stay warm. Hashtag not a sponsor yet. Yeah, hashtag not a sponsor yet. We should do a, <laughs> a thing where we talk about who's not our sponsor. That's right. These are Taco n- Bell is not our sponsor. These are not sponsored messages. Although they messages. should be. These are non-sponsored messages. <laughs> thanks for not Thanks for, thanks not, for not sponsoring us. us. We appreciate you. <laughs> Shout out. Shout out, T-Bell. Someday. So- <laughs> Someday. Speaking into existence. Um. Yeah, so I, when when we uh, started talking about having this as a topic, uh, the one of the first things I thought was, how have we not had this as a topic yet? Great call. <laughs> because it, it feels like one of those things where I, if, if anybody is out there listening that hasn't felt the little twinge of imposter syndrome, please send us an email and let us know how. Yeah. Because uh, you might have something really special on your hands. You might have Dunning syndrome or whatever it's called. <laughs> Which will be another topic we'll do later. Well, it's like I always tell students, I'm like, every group of friends has like a certain type of friend. Yeah. And I tell them, if you don't, if you can't identify who that is in your group, it's you. Yeah. And so it's like imposter syndrome feels like that. Everybody's going through this. Right. You know, we, at, at one time so. or another, I mean, and some of you might be like nodding your heads viciously and being like, I go through it multiple times a day. In my studio <laughs> as I lift up my brush to paint. Yeah. I, I, had, yeah. I had just forgotten it, Gareth and Ryan, yeah. and now you played your stupid podcast yeah. and you're reminding me of it. That's and so right. I can't even work the rest of the day. Yeah. We're Thanks, sorry. guys. Yeah, I was doing, uh, I was, uh, so I'm doing official drawing lessons with my daughter, Ivory. So we had our first drawing lesson. Fantastic. And maybe we'll talk about this 
later, but this is heartbreakingly as I was closing up the lesson, that's when I found out about Kobe Bryant. Just super. That's, that's a tough. whole other discussion. So I've got this yeah. weird thing about finding that out in my studio, thinking it wasn't true, closing up a good time, really teaching my daughter Ivory. Yeah. You know, and I've been teaching for a long time. And, uh, yeah, so many weird feelings there. But I actually felt like it, uh, uh, I had some imposter stuff going on. Oh, for real? Teaching my daughter. Dang. I mean, you know, university instructor, professor, whatever, teaching. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's like running through a series of doubts. <laughs> like I had like a whole list of like, what the heck am I doing here? I, I, I can't even uh, convey... I'm not even sure. Like, I mean, it was just this like um, sizable amount of doubt, yeah. you know, um, not in, in doubt, but also just an awareness of it's, it's, it's like a strange mix of what you are and what you're not. And, mm-hmm. and it's like it's like teetering on that fact of what you are and what you're not, what you're becoming or what you're not becoming that you thought you'd become, you know, like, and you kind of dance around the the top of that. And, uh, um, you know, it's kind of how you center yourself or incline yourself back to the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. I guess it gets you out of that headspace, but it doesn't always, um, I don't premeditatively get there often. It tends to come at the expense of reflecting on what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. you know, at a particular life stage or something, you know, yeah. I don't know. Like, yeah, not to just jump in, I guess, but no, I mean, go for it, man. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I know that, um, where imposter syndrome kind of hits most closely with me is, um, having these ideas. Cause I mean, I have a, a non-traditional route into the world of art and design. Mm-hmm. And because of that, um, most of the time, if I run into a problem in a project, I'm like, oh, it's just because I haven't done this the right way. Mm-hmm. I haven't, I haven't gone through all the the check marks and checkpoints that somebody else has, mm-hmm. and so I find excuses for it being hard. And usually, the easiest first excuse is for me to say, "Oh, you're an imposter." Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yeah, you know, and it's uh, and it's tough, right? Because um, I don't know. I I, th- I think the hardest thing with imposter syndrome a lot of the times is that it's easy to believe. Mm-hmm. You know, and and some of that has to do with the fact that we. I mean, if you're if you're an accountant, you know if you're doing your job well. Mm-hmm. You know it's 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 an easily definable thing in some mm-hmm. ways. You know, like oh, I've I finished this. I've I found all the pennies and dimes and nickels. I've got it balanced. You know, whatever it is. You know, and I'm not just saying that about accounting, but a lot of things have that. But if you're an artist or a designer, like it's it's harder to know. Like there's not a like well, there's no way to have a balance sheet in a lot yeah, of ways. It's, it becomes tough. There's less of a repeatable pattern. Yeah, because part part of what you're expected to do uh, creates new patterns or new new forms. Yeah, so there's an interplay between repeatability and newness that um, creates these tensions. But um, I think you know, in the so if we were to parse it out, like I'm trying to think in my mind, like if I were to like categorize this human, you know, I, I often use the uh, the the idea of, um, uh, well, you know, when you get hand-me-downs, yeah. they don't always fit. They're either too small or too big. Mm-hmm. So when they're too small, 
it really, really presses on you to get into something bigger. Yeah. You know, so sometimes you could be vocationally uh, uh, in a space where you're making and doing and you know for sure you got more than what what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's uh, working on a team collaboratively, whether it's a, a slew of paintings you're making, you know, you're so there's a kind of rest that could come with that because you're not anxious, you know you can do it. Mm -hmm. Or there's a kind of, um, a pers you can slip into overestimating and overconfidence as a result Yeah, because you're wearing clothes that are too small for you. They've been kind of passed down to you as an opportunity and you it's take like, it. Like big fish in a little pond. That's right. Kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And then, but then there's the opposite, which is uh, you get hand-me-downs or uh, occasions that um, maybe you've wanted and you want it so badly uh that you've kind of collapsed the process, so you're wearing something that's too big for you. Yeah, and so you're the strange paradox of of obtaining to what you wanted, but it doesn't fit tight. Mm -hmm. And so there's you've got it, but you're not fully inhabiting it. Mm -hmm. So you have what you wanted, but you're not fully able to enflesh it, and you have a sense that that's true for you, which causes you to kind of look around and wonder if everybody else can see that or not. Mm -hmm. You know, so then you start to live in a uh, space where you're wondering if other people notice. That's when you start to feel. So like, you know, when you, you go to talk to somebody uh, regarding the metaphorical clothes you're wearing, mm -hmm. you know, the vocation you have, the, the work you're doing as an artist or a professor or a designer, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, whatever performer, um, you know, a student, whatever it is, uh, depending on who you're talking to, you may you may feel it more deeply if you think they can see you more clearly, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So it's, yeah, I don't know. So there's, there's, those are two categories. The, the way I tend to think about it though, is, is that we're, we're, we're actually uh, process people, not merely destination people. And so if we overstress destination, we uh, fail to recognize the process, even when we obtain to, a point of reference for ourselves, a goal, mm -hmm. a job, a relationship, you know, a child, whatever it is. And so somewhere there has to be both. You have to kind of weirdly ebb and flow back and forth between the fact that I'm growing and I uh, have. And uh, um, I think there's just like a surreal thing uh, when it comes to what we think we want and what we what we're going to get uh, in, in relationship to when we get it. And so I think part of the imposter syndrome too, is trying to parse out the difference. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah, what, yeah. what, how did my, um, how do my expectation, how are my expectations off such that I feel off doing the work I thought I wanted to do? You know, I don't feel like I fit it well all the time or whatever. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. Cause I think one of the dangers with, uh, with imposter syndrome, um, is not that we feel it, but it, it really is that we try to avoid feeling it. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't always happen in a productive way. Right. You know, so we just say, oh, I'm going to ignore that and keep going. And it's like, well, sometimes maybe, maybe that little twinge is, is a, is a helpful thing. It's saying, you know, like, well, maybe we're not, maybe we're not actually doing work that's yeah. really taxing us to the point of moving towards excellence. Yeah. You know, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe, Sometimes imposter syndrome can be a healthy nudge, just kind of be like, "Hey, you're you're kind of you're phoning it in, maybe." 
Yeah. You know, because I mean, I've, I've been that way on projects where I'm like, oh, this is not good. It's just not going to be good. And looking back on it, I'm like, oh, it's because, you know, my work ethic was trash during that project. I didn't give it the time it needed. You know, I, I thought I could just skate by, whatever it is. Um, you know, and sometimes I think we, we just try to push away the feelings of the imposter syndrome yeah. in, instead of trying to kind of diagnose it like you're talking about. Of yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. is this because I'm, I'm not being right. good right now at my work or is this because I need to learn something else or is it because it's always kind of, I don't want to say like natural I yeah, don't know. Yeah, yeah. Is it kind of like a natural thing that you go through in a creative process? Well, listening to you, I was like, I, we got to consult the Oracle on imposter syndrome. And so I consulted Google. Oh, nice. Um, with uh, telepathy. I didn't cool. even know. But uh, so here, you know, it says that it can be, it can be, which I love that. You got to pay attention to that. That just means this is one way it can be defined. <laughs> right? We yeah. miss that sometimes. Can be defined as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist despite evident success. Imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and a sense of intellectual fraudulence that override any feelings of success or external external proof of their confidence or competence. So that's, that's just quick search on, on it, you know, uh, right away on Google. That's the consulting Google. Um, thanks Google. Yeah. So hashtag not a sponsor yet. Yeah. So it's interesting because I, I I do think that's part of the 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 goal obtaining. So there there is a external sense that you've succeeded at something, mm-hmm. um, and then there's the inability to accept it. I got a lot of ideas of why that is, but um, there's almost a way that you can kind of fetishize self doubt. Go on. Yeah. Well, what does it mean to fetishize things? What does that mean? Help me out. This is one of those fun <laughs> terms. Uh, a lot of my classes, when we deal with vocabulary, uh, we don't start with defining it. We yep, start by breaking I'm, down the I'm poor doing. definition. That's right. right. Because when we think of fetish size, um, I think a lot of times we confuse it with uh, commoditizing. Mm-hmm. And so we say things like, oh, how can I how can I make this uh, profitable, like beyond pleasurable, but yep. profitable, but also hugely define it into an area where mm-hmm. I can control it, do what I want with it. Yeah. And it doesn't affect me. Yeah. And I don't know. That's always, that's, yeah. That's, so I'm not looking, doesn't seem like it. I'm not going to look at Google, but uh, on this one, I'll try to take a jab at it and I might be wrong. Um, there's some task or some way of relating to something mm-hmm. where you bring something to a point, like a point of finish. So, like, you know, like a, f- fetish finish but it becomes a fixation yeah so yeah. you're fixated on it which means you continue to work it always to uh, a finer point mm-hmm. and you fetishize over it. so there's a kind of uh, fixated repeated um hyper attention um working massaging thinking on to where it becomes el- it, it, to where you almost you, you, you elevate something that in and of itself is not necessarily worthy of the kind of elevation you're giving it. And it's, you're doing it not so much for the benefit of anyone else. It's some kind of deep personal fixation. Now I'm not judging that per se. Yeah. So like you have like fetish finish paintings or, mm-hmm. you know, like, so if you look at uh, fetish finish cars where they're every detail 
is to the hilt, like every yeah. little piece of chrome. And it's like, it's just this, uh, you know, ooing over things that nobody can see. Yeah. It's like an over-articulation uh, that demonstrates something about your overwhelming care and delight in uh, whatever it is you're fixated on, mm-hmm. you know? And it can result in some masterful stuff. Like, I love Loretta cars. I think they look amazing. Um, so I'm not anti-fetish finish painting. But what's weird about fetish finish fetishizing things is sometimes it, 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 it makes you incapable of, like... Um, thinking anything else or caring about anything else. So it's like, can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. Sort you, of thing. Yeah. You, 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 you're so burrowed in that not only that, it makes it hard for anyone else to delight with you in mm-hmm. what you do because they don't fetishize it as much as you do. Yeah. It's like a, it's a, you become so myopic about things that right. nobody else can be in your field of view yeah. or share that field yeah, yeah. of view. So then they can never say anything to you that, that uh, deeply means anything to you because they've never, they can never outpace you with reference to what it is you fetishize yeah. enough to speak on it. Mm. So it's alienating. Um, and then and that is, so if you imagine alienating your self-doubt, I mean, if you imagine fetishizing your self-doubt, mm. perfecting it, crafting it, knowing every, every nook and cranny, right? Yeah. Uh, the things that nobody else knows, right? Nobody knows how poor I am right here, you know, and you, you name it and you obsess on it and you think about it. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine that? That gives me anxiety just hearing you talk. I know. I like know. It, it, I'm like, I feel like my pulse has risen just in yeah. those last two sentences. Yeah. Cause and, I think that's part of what it is though. No, Do you see what I'm saying? Is. And then you're, then you, and then it's weird, right? Because it comes, it becomes a self-defeating thing. Right. Because in order to uh, keep that intact, you have to actually keep focusing on it, yep. you know, and, and, yeah, yeah. and anything that would work against it or would make the foundation crumble, yep. you can't have. That's right. And so if we focus on imposter syndrome in that space and we fetishize in this way, yeah, as you're describing, then like, I have to always kind of work towards being an imposter. Yeah. Cause it's so self, so the self imposter necessarily follows from fetishizing self doubt. Mm, mm, it, mm. it happens as a result of the other and it becomes a strange phenomenon that you, um, it, you know, what's weird about it is the, the imposter syndrome gives it a, a, a it's, it's a, it's like a pair of clothes we can wear mm-hmm. that enables us to justify continuing to self doubt. Yeah. So self-fulfilling, right. Mm-hmm. And it literally always allows us to maintain a kind of, upside down authority on what we do mm-hmm. in relationship to everyone else. So you're always, nobody's going to be harder on you than you. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what, so a lot of times that's the perfectionist. Mm. Uh, I, was, I was just about to say yeah. the thing that comes to mind is when you meet artists and designers who say, I have a really hard time finishing things. Yeah. Which is not a unique thing. Yeah, we all yeah, had yeah. hard times doing that, but I'm talking about people that you find that this is, uh, this is like characteristic, right? Like, or they're like 99% of my work is unfinished. Yep. yep. And I think it, it, it points to a lot of this, right? Where, um, I, I ask students when they ask me, when they talk about this, I'm like, well, is it unfinished because you have an unattainable standard? Is it unfinished because you don't understand what finished looks like? Mm-hmm. Or is it unfinished because if it's not finished, nobody can judge your work? Yeah. And critique yeah, yeah, it. yeah. 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 You know, or, yeah, or also, you know, in, in addition to, 
is it unfinished because then I can't judge my work. Right. So then I, I, cause I can't close the chapter on this. Mm-hmm. I can't afford to know because I need to stay in the space. That's the process. That's an overemphasis on process, not end. Yeah. Cause and the that, finish when somebody, either you or someone else can talk about your work that pushes against the self doubt you're talking about yep. because they either confirm or deny That's right. that self doubt. Right. And so you can't be in that cycle anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it leads to, well, which direction are you going? That's right. Yeah. So you're in a, you're stuck because you have to, you, you know, you have to, um, so, so, you know, what's interesting is like, I mean, now this is just like one angle, right? Like I think there's other reasons for imposter syndrome. This is just one thought. Also then it's, it, it's interesting how that can drive folks to be isolated because they, they're trying to r- reconcile this in private, but they're also obsessing over it. And, uh, it makes it very hard for folks to feel safe to come out in. I'm thinking about myself and other studio artist friends that I've had over my lifetime. And so specifically in studio art, I guess I'm thinking a little bit, but, um, in terms of potential bents, you know, like the way someone might be bent towards design, perhaps if you were to make a very gross generalization or there, there might be some points of departure if you like did some data analysis on this, you mm-hmm. know? So, uh, the self-doubt becomes philosophized, you know, you start, uh, reading certain thinkers and you start to create a construct for how to fetishize it, be empowered by it while also kind of controlled by it, uh, so that you, you don't have to step out of certain bounds. You know, you really are creating a, a tight space for yourself. And, um, you know, you almost can imagine how artists then their work almost gets rescued out of their hands or out of their studio in, sp- in spite of themselves. And and then what you do is you go back and you romanticize, you know, um, someone like, um, uh, oh gosh, who am I thinking of? Um, I'm having a Alzheimer moment myself where my brain is like always forgetting. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I really worry about that. No, what? Oh gosh. What's his name? Um, who's the paint? De Kooning. Yeah. De Kooning, like the romantic stories about De Kooning, not sneaking into galleries to finish a painting. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like he couldn't, he could, the paintings were never done. So we say things like the painting's never done. Or it's like Michael Jordan, you know, um, is, you know, I read a, uh, article many years ago now, but it really, it came out the same time Michael Jackson passed away and Mike Kelly had, there's a whole thing there. But so Michael Jordan, um, the ESPN article is from a friend who hangs out with MJ, you know, and for those that don't know, Michael Jordan's a basketball player who, uh, won a lot of championships is arguably considered the best player ever and has got to live in the same time as he's being referred to as the best player ever. So yeah. he's at the, he's at the pinnacle and able to like experience that pinnacle. And so he's retired and he has like panic attacks if he can't find his championship rings mm-hmm. and uh, tears his house apart and, watches games with his buddies and it's just like unraveled talking about like how he'd do it. Like he can't, he can't just like, he's not at peace. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I actually idolized this guy as a kid. So reading that was like really wild to me. And, uh, it was telling cause it's like, here's the guy, literally people are saying you're the best. And he still can't, um, he can't rest in that. He's, he's, uh, he's, um, unraveled by it and his friends don't see it and go, gosh, Mike, you need help. His friends go, he's still got it. Man, he's still got it. Yeah. 
he can go out right now and kill it. Like they, they read it the way they read what's happening. They just read it as, as a romantic, just another indicator that he's the best. And so then what happens is that becomes prescriptive. Mm-hmm. And so then what you do is if you're not Michael Jordan or de Kooning, but you see certain similarities in your tendencies, their enlarged picture gives you a prescriptive way forward. So then you're in your studio, you're not de Kooning. You don't you you don't have a gallery, so you can't sneak into it and finish a painting. But you're doing everything else that you've read that he does that's been romanticized, mm. you know. And so, um, I mean, not to I'm gonna tread carefully. I don't want to get into like you know too deep into mental health issues. I'm not mental health issues. I'm not. I've been a counselor, but I'm not necessarily qualified to talk about that. You know, neither of us are. But yeah. Um, but you know, you can you can see how these ideals get propped up and. Uh, that you know, massaged into a, a a form that is palatable to us. You know, we almost like we craft something to idolize after our own desires, kind of thing. You know, yeah, um, yeah. That's why Kobe Bryant was so tragic. Not to, I can't help it. I can't help but think about it. It's because he was seemingly doing the opposite of Michael Jordan. Oh yeah, like he knew how to not. He he had rested. Mm-hmm. He knew how to stop. He was good. He knew how to move on and do other stuff be a dad, you know, make books, write stories. Like, like he was, he was seemingly figuring that out in a way that I hadn't seen somebody else that had been at, at a perceived pinnacle like he was, Mm -hmm. you know, and he even said something, he said, Mike, Michael doesn't know how to stop. He goes, so, cause two guys were like, man, you're just like Michael. And he's like, no, 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 no. And they're really, Michael and him are really good friends. And he was like, no, no, no. He's like, Michael competes with everything. Doesn't matter if he's ever done it or not. He, he, that's the only mode. Is that, that that's like his mode? Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, I'm not going to compete on stuff I don't know how to do. Like he's like, doesn't matter. So so there was you know there was a and he said in his mind that was a big difference. What was interesting is the other players talking to him had idolized both of them and kept saying, Nah, that ain't a difference. You know, <laughs> you you all are the same because they need it. They need that. They want the justification on one side of it. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They want the they want they want to know they fell short pursuing MJ because what Kobe's doing is making them feel like they're falling short on something they ought to be able to obtain to. Mm. You know? Um I have no idea how I got there or why I just said that. But uh I guess I'm just thinking about the way we create truisms that um are hard to inhabit and are self fulfilling. And keep us in a holding pattern to where we feel like, you know, we're imposters in spite of our successes. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's, there seems to be um, something about, like, acceptance, like like an unhealthy level of acceptance that mm-hmm. comes with this, like, fetishization of self-doubt mm-hmm. and the cycle of imposter syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. It's like... It's like somebody at some point just said, hey, if you just accept the fact that you're going to feel this way, mm-hmm. then you just got to live with it. Yep. You know, and, and there's something to, uh, you know, if I'm on a journey, um, I can accept where I am, but know that I'm heading somewhere else. Correct. You know, and it's it's a lot different than me saying, you know, hey, I'm trying to get to New York and I get to Philadelphia and I say, well, you know, I'm in Philadelphia. Just got to accept it. Just live with this now. And it's like, <laughs> I'm in no, New Mexico. But you're, you were you're, supposed <laughs> to be going to New York. No, well, we're in New Mexico. I don't know how it happened. I'm just accepting it. Just accept it. I'm just going to live it. You know, I'm just, just going to accept <laughs> There's the fact a new that both. I couldn't get there. <laughs> you know, and it's, it, it, it's defeating in yeah. a lot of ways. Um, but I don't think that in the moment I've never, you're not like 
thinking about this sure. as you're experiencing imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know, and it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's hard to do in the moment, but it's, mm-hmm. it's really helpful. Um, you know, and like, I don't know, where are you heading? You know, right. like if, if, if you're feeling like an imposter, mm-hmm. then what is it? Like, yeah. like sometimes it, it's helpful to just be kind of clinical with it sure. and say, well, let me, let me describe, like, I don't think I'm, I haven't sold enough work into private collections. Mm -hmm. So I feel like an imposter. I haven't had a gallery show in two years. So I feel like an imposter. I have, um, clients that I'm not feeling like I'm an active part of the conversation with. So I feel like an imposter. Like sometimes it helps us just to find that. Right. right? Because I think a lot of times if we can, if we can put a positive spin on something like imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm. it really is saying, well, like, well, where does this get me? Yeah. Because well, sometimes yeah, yeah. there is that, I mean, I'm still going to kind of hit back on this, which is maybe not the most like caring way to do it. But yeah, I think sometimes imposter syndrome is actually like, there's some truth in it. Yeah. I think so. Because I think that there's a right recognition that there's always more that can be done. Yeah. So as long as you keep it in a healthy space. Yeah. I think it's a real, you know, on, on one hand, I just think it's, a, I mean, I do think it's like a relationship. Like if I think about myself teaching my daughter drawing, I just know that there's a lot of people that can draw better than me. And I also know how much time I can give to to doing it or getting better at it. And that's weighted against uh, everything else that I do. So, like, I know that I'm not going to be X or Y. Like, like we had Sterling Hunley on. I'm never going to be Sterling Hunley. That guy's, yeah, that guy's a machine. It's impressive. He's amazing. Very yeah. impressive. He, but so that's the irony, though. This is the c- culture we live in. Just like, you know, like, you know, like, take Kobe Bryant. The whole thing is you're not going to be Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Otherwise, he wouldn't be Kobe Bryant. <laughs> Because you see what I'm yeah, saying? Singu- yeah, totally. Singular folks are are just that. And so they can't both be singular in everybody. And, you know, uh, we we sometimes wish for that. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't be provoked and inspired by them. We've talked about inspiration and things like that in the past. But um, so there's some kind of healthy relationship to uh, one's ability and also where one falls short. Yeah. And that's in relationship to what we do. And like, so, you know, so for me, I, I can remember I'm the first person to go to college and graduate in my family, you mm-hmm. know, the only person. So I came from, you know, what I mean by rough, I don't just mean rough, like circumstances, but just like a rough person, mm-hmm. you know, like not an academic, not you know, terrible student, um, no categories for school or learning really. And uh, so by the time I, I got serious and went to school, like, I can remember getting through college going, this is it. Like all the time I, I built up what college was going to be and it. You know, it wasn't quite what it was. So then I started to feel like I was getting away with something because I was passing my classes. Mm. I was like, I'm getting away with this. Like, this is not right. And so then, you know, so then that's where the, the imposter aspect kicks in. You're like, either this isn't what I thought it was or somehow I'm, I'm sneaking by in a way that it's not being accounted for. Yeah. And those were the two kind of like ditches I kept sort of, uh, you know, moving back and forth between. And, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. I think I, probably, I might have been getting by a little bit, but also I had built things up because I lacked information and knowledge. Like, you know, you can't get embodied knowledge ahead of getting embodied knowledge. So you can't know what it feels like to be a college student for four years and then two more degrees until you actually are the only kind of knowledge you can have is by proposition, people telling you what's coming mm-hmm. and, and it's how you relate to that information, how you scale it to your desires. Right. And so, um, so there's going to be a miss. 
And so it's how you set up your expectations to anticipate how it is that you're off. And I don't think we do a lot of foresight on that. Mm. You, you know what I mean? Like I don't think we hold, hold our expectations with an open hand to say, this is the best expectations that I can come up with. I'm sure they're slightly off, and I'm really eager to see how, how so. I don't know that I, I historically I prepared that way. I often overassumed and was surprised by the difference. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, I mean, like, um, and, you know, just to clarify, like, so you're saying, like, you know, with the Kunin or something like that. Yeah. Like, okay, I might want to aim for being like that, but sure. just because I'm not doesn't mean I'm not good. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. That's the thing. It's like you're, you're um, for every, uh, you know, Jessica Stockholder or, you know, Ro- Susan Rothenberg or um, Marutu or like people that come forward in an enduring singular way for one reason or another um, are exactly that. And so by being that, there can't be another in place of them. Yeah. They're not interchangeable. Mm -hmm. So people aren't interchangeable in that way. And so um, what's nice about that is it it just means that you're, you're something else. Mm -hmm. And so um, along the way of figuring that out, you got to, reassess your expectations. I'm not saying you can't arrive. I mean, there's people listening that, that tomorrow could, could sign with a blue chip gallery and just be like, or they are a blue chipper and they're, yeah. you know, they're wrestling with it right now or whatever. I, I'm just saying that there's something about the way an individual is. It's the way we relate to other people's stories that they, the narrative framework of their story, the way it's presented to us, the way it's curated and edited enables expectations to come forward. You know, so grandpa talks about the good old days and you finally get into a space where you're living out some of what he called the good old days and it don't quite add up. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going to feel some, it's almost like you have to feel doubt along with the success because you're like, this can't be it. Cause if this is it, I'm not satisfied mm. enough, which is why I think we tend to double down on the self doubt because yeah. you can always doubt a little harder. Yeah. Cause, um, I think, you know, the, the danger of, of what we're saying is that you veer too far in this direction, right? Yep. <clears throat> and you overshoot the, the, the happy medium mm-hmm. of sorts. Um, and you get to a place where you say, oh, I can, I can just accept that I'm not very good. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, no, we're not saying that. Yeah. You know, but it's, it's saying that there, there's probably a huge range of being very uh, uh, good and capable mm-hmm. in the thing that you practice um, that, ends at the pinnacle of these sure. big names, but starts well before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, so it's only when my position or station changes where I move into a new stage of life where uh, these things pop up again. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you inhabit the clothes for a while, you grow into them and they fit comfortably. Yeah. It's It's when something makes you uncomfortable in your skin that you then can also feel tempted, you know, in a different sense. Not, Cause not everybody's fetishizing self doubt, but they, they're persistent. And so, you know, you could be moving in a field where you're constantly inventing. Mm-hmm. Therefore you're constantly not sure because you really are actually doing things that are not, that don't have like a longstanding repeatability to them such that we can confirm that this is a, a working thing. Right. You know, it could be a new body of paintings you've never done before. And so you're, or a work of sculpture that you're working out, with new materials and uh, a, a way, a sense of touch or a feel that, that comes from your hand that you haven't otherwise expressed before. 
and now you're you're falling into this work, if you will, and you're seeing where it's going and it's it's leading you somewhere. Other people are seeing it as actually engaging, compelling, resonant, whatever, but you haven't really connected to it yet. So you feel disingenuous to the work. Yeah. Because it's it's sort of happened faster than you expected or it's departed in ways that you couldn't account for. But your first premise was that you were open to change. And so now you're you're living out the implications of being open. Mm-hmm. And that can just make you feel like a fraud. You know what I'm saying? Like in a in the in the positive sense, like in the yeah. sense that like it's just like cause you're like, uh I, I external expectation to be so sometimes with with artists and designers we are expected to be impeccably in the know about what we do but we're also uh curious people who actually don't know but are willing to step forward and find out so in the positive sense sometimes societal pressure demands something from us that because there's a lack of infrastructure in the arts that we end up stepping into and owning, even though we don't really know for sure, which is okay, by the way, because we actually are charting out new territory. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But because uh, to show ignorance, if you will, or a lack of knowledge before people that are critical uh, could weaken the position you're gaining in establishing the value of the work you do. Mm -hmm. So that's the greater good you don't want to lose. And so then we end up saving face and acting like we know more than we do about what we're doing. Because we've let people who don't know define for us what is reasonable to expect from us. Yeah. It's, um, so, so we're kind of getting to the place where imposter syndrome, uh, it can be positive, it can be negative. Yeah. Uh, it can be something that encourages and discourages. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be something that uh, tells us we're actually not working hard enough or we are working hard enough. That's right. Yeah. It's a, it's a yeah. fickle little beast. That's right. I think, I mean, I think so. And I think you could dance between the two. Yeah. A side note. Um, this is the hardest thing I'll say in my mind because it, it, it's, it's for anyone, including myself in such a personal way, but, um, every little lie we tell adds up. Yeah. So the practice of lying, you know, just thinking about that pressure. So the practice of lying will inauthenticate the most authentic actions you make. You will never the you know like they've done those studies on like just people lying they do those interviews and people just like tell crazy lies for and no they're like why'd you do it and they're like i don't know i just yeah. um and uh i've never lied <laughs> except right now <laughs> except for right now that's the way i clean the slate i just tell one big lie and i feel like i'm justified now no um i just told a big lie that wipes out all the other lies now i'm starting clean uh no but uh something about lying in small ways. Oh gosh. I just saw an article. These are these are always post these are always floating around, by the way. Yeah. In fact, this is this is me thinking on the Uber spot. Could be really dumb. But uh thoughts have mass. Okay. So that's this the new science. Thoughts have mass, which means they take up space. Okay. Super fascinating. So thoughts are like sculptures in your mind. Mm. Really good. Really, really so the um so then think about this is tangential. Think about the amount of information we're taking in, mm-hmm. that we're processing of thoughts, mm-hmm. that are taking up space, that have mass, mm-hmm. which means we're anxious because we're in a mass, max capacity. But also, um, if that's true, which I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a fascinating thought. Um, 
Oh gosh, I lost it. Well, I think there's, uh, you know, as as you're it'll come thinking back. on that, like yeah. I think there's some like even uh, physiological reality to that as like supporting that, mm-hmm. in that um, you know there's this this science that supports that um, the synapses in our brain mm-hmm. actually get hardwired over time. Yeah, so that's we, right. we can't stop thinking in certain ways. That's right. And yeah, so yeah. the 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 mass thing I think makes sense because you're you're talking about um, thinking about like paving roads between places. Yeah. You know, that road's there. doesn't mean you can't get off that road. It just means what's the real enticement to do that. That's right. And so, okay, so so imagine lies as thoughts occupying space. Ooh. Okay. So th- that means that distance is being ever established between you and the real or the truth. Yeah. Exponential distance in your cognitive experience, which means you are further alienating yourself from the possibility of not feeling like an imposter. Not only that, but then you're not able to see others as not being anything short of an imposter. You you see what I'm saying? Because if it's, you know, like the whole, if it's real for me, it's got to be real for them. Right. So, so, well, okay. So, uh, even more distorted, it's, it's that and distorted. So like, this is why you can idealize somebody because that's a lie. Yeah. You're bypassing their humanity right. and fabricating them into an impeccable being, yeah. which allows you to feel justified in falling short. Mm. Right. So you're lying about them in a different sense than you are to yourself. And the lie's not neutral. These thoughts occupy space that take up. If, <laughs> if there's mass of some kind, I mean, this is so pseudoscience. I mean, what do I know? But I'm just thinking out loud, like if there's any kind of weird plausibility to this, you got to you got to wonder, like, what does that mean, though? Like, has you ever sat next to someone and felt really, really like spatially far from them in inside yourself? But, yeah. But you're physically close to them. Like mm-hmm. I've had moments where I've been in a room where I felt like I was light years removed, almost lost to the occasion. But what with my eyes open, totally aware you know, and there's other times where I'm so present that I, I've lost awareness of like, you know, I think the opposite would be like, you're so present that you got food in your face and you don't know it. Yeah. So it's like these two extremes. But um, I can, I just can imagine that um, we're making it harder to ever, ever, it's almost like becoming alienated to yourself. Mm. So that, that brokenness creates a chasm and you start to look for, um, it's an exponential chasm where you start to look for another way over the chasm, you know, or you start to, you just, you just kind of have to develop an appetite for the lie, if you will, mm. because that's the only thing you can have. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So like though you're, so you, you, you make it inauthenticity, the authentic thing. You just, you just kind of switch around the categories and act like oh. it's one over the, I mean, it's, you can imagine this, you know, and then you can imagine, I mean, then what are you doing to other people? Oh man. It, yeah. I, I mean, so you're, you're talking about the, uh, man, this is, this is, this is rough. Like it, it's almost like you're talking about then, uh, like, um, cynicism just becomes a defense mechanism. Yeah. And you say, well, it's gotta be that. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, um, then we have to like start to, uh, break down and erode the the formations around us, right? In order to to feel like we're better because we've fed our lies so much, mm-hmm. yeah. And that and that's and that's tough. And I think that's a place where it, I mean, me personally, and uh, 
a lot of folks I've met, I think if we're real honest with ourselves, we get in that spot where like cynicism is easy. Yeah. Like it's very easy. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's easy to get there. It's mm-hmm. extremely hard to get out of it. Exactly. Because, I mean, uh, I mean, for me, uh, end of undergrad, beginning of grad school, master's work, like there was so much cynicism um, that, you know, so we're talking like 2005, 2006, mm-hmm. like even into like 2014, 2015, like mm-hmm. I had people that were still like, hey, you're heavily defined by cynicism. Yeah. You know, I mean, even to a point where um, like you said something in passing one time about a year and a half ago, two years maybe, where you were like, you're like, yeah, dude, you're you're not nearly as cynical as you were. <laughs> and it was it was one of those things where like I think it just kind of casually came out of your mouth. But yeah. when I heard it, it was like it was like getting hit upside the head with a baseball bat. <laughs> and I was because and not in a necessarily bad way. Right. Um but it was in the way that like you want your friends to to have those things that just I actually like, remember saying <laughs> I mean it's like um and saying it in a That's way. That's when I knew we could work together. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, uh, you know, because it, it, it worked two different ways. One of them where it was like, it was the external reality that, yeah, you were actually like that yeah. in a very heavy way. Sure. But then it was also something where like, I, I also hadn't realized that I had lost some of it. Right. Which right. Which was hugely helpful The to gap hear. had been closed. You yeah. Know? And it was like, yeah. It was like, yeah. And, and I think the, the evidence that I had lost some of it was that I probably had a few more better friends. <laughs> yeah. It's a better friends. You had kids. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, there I, are a lot of things that yeah. it's hard to be cynical around. You can't be cynical around kids. It's difficult. Kids are, kids are wonderful. I, I feel like when you have kids, I mean, that's another thing. I can't help it. So if you're not a sports fan, I'm sorry. This is just, you know, Kobe's fresh in my mind and I am, a, you know, arts. I mean, I just love people. So, but Kobe was, uh, one of the things I loved about him is that he was very, very honored and proud to be a father and he loved, uh, you know, being, uh, a girl dad, you know, he, he yeah. talked about a lot and, you know, I have two daughters and, and was prepared to have nothing but daughters in in the best pot. Never, never bothered me. Never yeah. was like, Oh, people like you can have a son. It's like, you know, for very personal reasons, based on the way I was raised and the difficulties that I had, I always said I'd be honored to to have a son because I think that was just a personal response to some of the difficulties I struggled through. But um, as an adult, it was like psh, I just want children. You know, I want to yeah. uh, uh, hope. You know, want them to be healthy if at all possible. And you know, I'm very just thankful. And so, um, but you know, I will say there's something about. And so I say kids because partly when you're talking, I was thinking about my own bitter. A cynical phase, and uh, when when I came out of my first grad degree, I got was a part of the Warhol uh, Foundation, a grant recipient to teach at an elementary school, and I was teaching kindergartners through to sixth grade, and um, at Joseph Sims Elementary, and those kids loved me so much in a way I didn't couldn't love myself, mm. and uh, their perpetual hugs were like little dive bombs. You know, they would just dive bomb and hug me, draw pictures and run across campus and go, here you go, Mr. L. And like, I went through about two years of just being loved on by kids and I, in a, in the most pure sense, like they just appreciated what you were teaching them. And they were like humanizing me out of my ap- academic bitterness because they didn't have any of the pretense. Yeah. Thought out some of that stuff. Yeah. They weren't, they weren't there yet, you know? Yeah. And, uh, um, it changed me for the good for a long, you know, there's other huge things that I've, I think have changed me, uh, also, but, um, and so even my own kids, you know, I come home and where I was leaving this morning and my son, Oliver, uh, he's just turned five. He can't write yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's writing a book 
He's actually writing alphabet. I mean, so he's like sounding out words. Love it. And so he's writing uh, his own Goosebumps. Nice. Um, story, which is really just a mashup of every Goosebumps movie he's watched. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's fun to watch. He's dead serious about it. You know, he's like, how do we sound this word out, Dad? And he's like, because this is about uh, the Cyclops or something like that. So um, my point in that is these other people that are joy bringing responsible demanding um they demand your responsibility your character uh they draw you out but they draw you out into other humans so like you could be you know like there's the person who's endlessly after the sublime so they go to the antarctics or they go to you know they go to chase down like where beardstad painted or something like that mm-hmm. and and there's these inc- incredible vistas don't get me wrong i'm in awe you know <clears throat> But there's a kind of person that can endlessly look at the stars and it's so vast and so impersonal that they're drawn out of themselves, but they're drawn out to a vast impersonalness. Yeah. And that's where they're drawn out. So then when they come back to their vocation and their studio practice or whatever, there's a highly impersonal way they relate to it because they're being drawn out, but they're not being drawn out into other persons per se. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, but in the reverse or the other uh, alternative, there's being drawn into persons. And so as you're a maker, you're so that alienation we feel as a result of all the different things we're talking about mm-hmm. is mitigated by uh, externals that draw you out of yourself into perhaps a better you, if you will. Yeah. Um, a more human you, a more honest you, a more genuine you, like these these things we value, we recognize it. We say things like we want authenticity, we want value. We, I mean, we we're trying to be as honest on in here as we can be. Yeah. Um. You know. I mean, anytime you we come on this show, like I know for sure there's just a a busload that I like. It's not a cheap statement. Like I just don't know. Yeah. And so, um. But we we recognize we. We recognize, I almost did a Bugs Bunny, we recognize, we recognize the value of it yeah. or at least the leaning towards that. And so there's something, you know, so when we talk about like ecosystems and community, like know and be known, it always circles around these things because uh, to be drawn out of yourself into other human relationships that are actually for your good and uh, moving in some kind of direction are going to close these gaps. So you have good friends around you and then you have children, you're being activated you're being um, located in the midst of a, of a diversity of people that help you find yourself a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the reality of it is that um, in your life, no matter how much of a professional in the art and design world you are, mm-hmm. um, your activity in that space mm-hmm. will always be um, fewer number of hours mm-hmm. than your activity as a relational being within a community. Yeah. And, and if you lose sight of that, then your work can aspire towards these big things, mm-hmm. but it'll never really account for persons. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because you're, because you're, you're moving further towards impersonalness or what I would call it is dehumanizing. So if you, you know, um, as, as opposed to, um, and I know I'm, being thesis antithesis, I know I'm being kind of binary in this or whatever, but it's just just to make it real clear and, and obvious that that mm. things aren't static, so you're always moving in a direction, and you either feel authentic to the work or you don't. That's a process. There's checkpoints or there's occasions that make you reflect, 
And some of that has to do with your orientation towards what you're doing. Yeah. Um, like I'm having to do new, as you know, without going into it, I'm having to do some new things, uh, at work and it's requiring me to learn again, learn some new things. I didn't, if you'd have told me a year ago, I'd have to learn. I wouldn't, would, wouldn't have guessed it. So, um, because I feel pretty grounded elsewhere, I don't, I don't feel like an imposter per se, Mm -hmm. but I do feel like I, I got a lot to learn, you know? So, so I'm trying to have a healthy assessment of the foundation that I'm standing on. Uh, to see how well that can help me learn and um, relationally I'm better able to let other people do work that I can't do and meaning like I don't feel like I got to do it all. Yeah. You know, so. Well, I think, you know, you know with that, there's a lot of uh, conversation that, that really can be, you know, we talk about imposter syndrome. A lot of it uh, I think comes about because there, there is like a lack of perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a, a good phrase um, in terms of like who I am and who I'm hoping to become in my work as a, as a creative person um, to kind of be a good perspective. A, a phrase that is helpful for me is like the already not yet. Um, so kind of this idea that I'm, I'm doing this stuff now, but if I am, if I am practicing well, mm-hmm. um, and holding a, a particular kind of perspective that we're talking about where, where I am a, a point in an ecosystem and I am not the sole bearer of mm-hmm. that weight, um, then I am not yet what I will be. Yeah. You know, and that's, and I think that if it's we already to, not yet, you're, you're, you yeah. are what you are and you're growing into what you will be. You, yeah. It's like a both end. It's yeah, that yeah. tension. Yeah. That's and right. it's, and it's, a, you know, it's a healthy thing because a lot of times I think we, we throw one out for the other. Yeah. Right. That's right. Like I either am that thing now yep. and I've attained it and there's a different kind of anxiety there mm-hmm. or I'm not that thing. So I must be trash now. Yeah. And so we, we fall in these ditches instead of yep. saying, no, I, I, I am where I am right now, Yeah, but I'm not where I'm going to be. Well, yeah. Well, what, so, so, you know, what's the opposite of, um, it was the opposite of lie. Let's non lie, <laughs> which doesn't necessarily mean truth, but let's be, pop philosophers and just say the opposite of a lie is a truth. Okay. Um, being more truthful will help you maintain, uh, a sense that you're not an imposter. So are you talking like honesty with self or I both mean, and okay. each other verbalizing it? So communication. Yeah, yeah. So think about hoarding your thoughts and think about how that creates a really cluttered closet because they occupy mass. Think yeah. about confessing your thoughts, mm-hmm. communicating them and putting them display like, conveying them yeah responsibly mm-hmm. but honestly not so just not like spewing thoughts on yeah, people all the time yeah yeah but purport uh, appropriate to the occasion yeah will um make us less alienated from ourselves and each other which will close the gap on how much we feel like an imposter because what you'll find in there is when you risk losing you'll find out if you're going to lose it or not yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you're like, if you're like, uh, uh, I've been shown, I've been exhibiting in so many galleries for so long and yet I just don't feel like I'm actually a real painter. Um, well maybe if you talk about that with the people you think are going to be the most critical, you may find that they share in the same experience mm-hmm. and there's a, a meal to be had and some bread to break and a conversation that, helps you realize that you're more deeply connected and it's simply not true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and then what that does is that possibly opens up more conversation, which requires uh, more time together 
right? Mm-hmm. And before you know it, you're, you're, you have a deepened relationship. So again, I'm just going to go Kobe. Yeah. I'm just going to do it. Kobe, yeah. Kobe came out. So his agent is Rob Polinka. Mm-hmm. Rob, so Kobe shared about 16 years ago, they were, Rob Polinka is the GM, general manager for the Los Angeles Lakers now. Mm-hmm. 16 years ago, well, so since Kobe came into the NBA, Rob Polinka was Kobe's agent. Oh, wow. They started together. What happened was they became best friends, and Kobe said, "You know, they had a they were hanging out together, and they said, Kobe, they just had a conversation, and uh, they were intimate enough with each other they could share their wildest dreams, even the ones that seemed utterly impossible." Yeah, and they said Kobe's was like, "What you know? He's always wanted to write, so he said one day, wouldn't it be great if I like want to make write books and make movies? That wouldn't be amazing if I got an Oscar one day." <laughs> And then Rob Plink is like, yeah. And he starts talking about like, yeah, wouldn't it be great if one day I was the general manager of the, of the Los Angeles Lakers? You know, and they just they just laughed at each other. Yeah. You know, and they just thought about the impossibility of it. But it deepened their, you know, like it's like they could share that those kinds of aspirations and hopes as close friends. And so then fast forward 16 years later and Kobe wins an Oscar and Rob Plink is the and they're on a they're on a vacation. And they're just like sitting there going, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. So what? why am I saying that? Well, I can imagine both of them feeling like an imposter at the Oscars and sitting as a general manager, but they know each other and they can share in the strangeness of inhabiting a space they had cast as a dream and hadn't fulfilled yet. Yeah. You know, so that so now it's not an, it's not an isolated phenomena. It's, it's a shared reality that uh, is bore out with authentic conversation about it, even to the point where you can laugh at it. Yeah, uh, so yeah. w- what a great what a great thing to be able to laugh on the front end of a dream cast, but also on the back end of a dream a dream obtained. Mm-hmm. You see, no, definitely. Um, um, yeah, I I'm always telling um, students and young professionals that one of the most important things you can have in your career as an artist or designer is an honest friend, mm-hmm. um, because you can share things like this with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to say because they can hold you accountable because a lot of times that feels like it's like, too rigid. It's like, Oh, that's, that's the exam proctor yeah. who's sitting there saying, keep your head that's down. Right. Don't look to the left or the right. It's a strict parent that you didn't have growing up. But it's the person who is the friend enough to say, Hey, you know, like, where are you on this? Yeah. Like yeah, how, yeah. how is this? Like, yeah. are you, you know, you said you want, is that still a thing? Yeah. You know, that you said you wanted to do. Um, and if so, like, can I help you yep. in any way? You know, it's really helpful to have those things and, um, you know, it, it, having that community and, and I've never heard anybody, nobody I've told that to has gone, that's a dumb idea. Yeah. That's yeah, stupid. Yeah. I don't need those people. Right. I mean, I'm not saying those folks aren't out there that would yeah. react yeah, yeah. that way, but most folks are like, yeah, I see the value in that. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, while there's truth in them saying, yeah, I see the value in that. I think most of the time we, we don't honestly understand how much value is in that. Yeah. I think it until you have it and, but it also until you have it until you've lived with it for a while. So, cause I would, yeah. I would you just build on what you said and say, uh, uh, in total agreement with that. And, and, and in addition to is accountability is exactly what you're saying. And also it's what like that picture I just shared with you is where you have two people that are, um, they're endeavoring into the things that they feel inclined towards yeah. in the best possible sense. And just that is, a, uh, brings about accountability because mm-hmm. you're surrounded by people that actually want to do things. Yeah. So that acts as a, or a healthy accountability because 
I need to see people flourishing um, just as much as I want to flourish. Right. And, and I've been in many community environments where there's withering and no matter how, how good you are, you wither with. Yeah. So we, you know, it's really hard to overcome that. And so it's, there's an imperative way that we move towards things that cause everyone to flourish or as many as possible to flourish towards various ends. And along those diverse ends, then you have these meaningful discussions and, and, um, this, you know, then you're, you're creating the subsequent generation, the next generation and so on. Like it, it raises bigger questions, cosmic questions, but, um, that's why I bring kids up, I guess, because as I'm, as we're doing all the things that we're doing, my kids are at home, um, playing piano, drawing, writing stories, loving, loving neighbors across the street, doing things. And, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of almost, they're, they're in the seed stage of what we're working towards, but they've been planted in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to spring out of what we're doing. And it's going to be really interesting to see what they do next. And I don't think for a minute that I'm not thinking about that mm-hmm. as much as I'm thinking about every other artist that we love and know and want to see exhibit and show and do work. I'm thinking about th- those neighbors, but I'm also thinking about the multi-generational neighbor mm-hmm. And those are helpful externals to, to move me in the right direction, I suppose, nice. and not have as much time spent um, fetishizing my self-doubt. It's hard to doubt yourself as much when your time is full of good work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, you know, it makes me kind of have the, the, the mental exercise question of like, um, if, if you're, if you're embroiled, if, if, if I'm someone who is completely embroiled in this, uh, imposter syndrome and self-doubt, um, it might be helpful for me to think of, uh, what does the next generation of artists or designers look like who are influenced by that attitude in me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and is yeah. that what I really want? Yeah. You know, because I think most people, when you have uh, destructive or addictive thoughts uh, or patterns or behaviors, um, most of those folks are not going to say, I want this for someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, most of us are going to say, no, I, I don't want this. I, totally. want it, I want it better for yeah, the yeah, next yeah. person. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a lot that I think, you know, community helps with that. Yeah, like I think you're so. talking about. It's just got to step towards it. It's just, it's just hard. You know, it's scary. It's intimidating. It trust. I mean, I had a lot of trust issues, so. I didn't, I've not arrived where, you know, the place that I'm at today overnight and I got a long ways to go. Well, it's crazy, know? right? I mean, we talk about like vulnerability is a difficult thing to do. Totally. It's very hard to step into like you're yeah. talking about because there is a huge level of uncertainty mm-hmm. when you embark on vulnerability with somebody. Right. Um, but once it's established, it's very easy to build on and find really functional places yeah. in. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's tough to be... Um, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I think it's, it's funny that sometimes we want to, we want to show like a, a, a vulnerability and discernment in our work. You know, we want to have things that are kind of, uh, poised and maybe do make people stop and have reflection. Yeah. Um, and we think that that can happen without us actually experiencing it in real life. Yeah. Know, I mean, relationally. I, yeah. So, I mean, like I'm thinking like, you know, if you're, you know, if you're in a work environment, you're working with designers or whatever, I'm just imagining scenarios where you're in a studio environment or you're working with a collaborative team. The best possible outcome from this is less excuses, more honesty, more accounting for what we do and don't do and more peace about that. In other words, there's less fast talk to cover up what we don't do. There's more time spent 
uh, settling into what we can do. We set goals for ourselves that are more that are reasonably attainable, that are less pressurized. And whether that's in your individual studio practice or with a team, with a community, with a you know, if you're like in a design team together, if you're an animation crew, and people bear the weight together, there's open lines of communication, and all of those things start to run. And in the best days, it's very satisfying. Yeah, you know, even if you fall short of uh, of winning an Oscar, you're you're satis- There's a satisfaction with what you could, which what you what you have done. Yeah, and that becomes empowering to to set the next stage as you as you can continue to press into the work, if you will. You know, as a maker, mm-hmm. and so um, you know whether it's personal, whether it's you know, you know meaning individual. Um, when you're when you're in a solid place like this, uh, studio work can go more steadily, which means you're not isolated as much, um, when you move towards deadlines, Mm -hmm. you know, because you're, you're kind of, uh, persisting in the work. Um, and, uh, you can delight in the outcomes of the work a lot easier. You know, I have, I've spent more time so far from what I'm talking about than I, than I have with. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't say that enough. Like the majority of my life has been everything we're talking about in the worst possible way. Yeah, same here. Uh, so the recent years have started to move in the other direction. And now that I, I kind of see it, I'm running ha- uh, harder after it, if that makes sense. Like, it's just like, oh, gosh, I do not want to go back anymore because I've gotten a taste. And I, I want to do my best to uh, lean in that direction with others, you know? Yeah. Because um, it's easy to recline right back. It doesn't oh, yeah. take much for me to fall into old habits. They, uh, they're right there all the time. Well, a lot of what we've been talking about has been about like when we experience imposter syndrome, what it feels like personally. But yeah. there, you know, there's probably plenty of people out there listening that um, they're like, well, I'm, I'm not in that spot. Yep. So does this even like impact me in yeah. this conversation? Because um, it sounds like what we're talking about is a lot of like what, like what you can do and how you can rethink if you're in that spot. Right. But if you're not in that spot, but you see folks around you that are, um, you know, sometimes, you know, understanding that things like that, that vulnerability, um, is difficult for folks. It might be easier for you in that space to take those first steps. Yeah. You become, be like, Hey, it's, it's cool that that isn't working out for you. I know that's it right. sucks, but it, yeah. it's okay. That's right. And so let's, let's, let's move on together. Yeah. If you're on the other side, then you are, you're not, not dealing with relating to folks that are there. Yeah. And so you become one of those external hugs, that external person that draws that draws the, the self uh, doubting person out of themselves, mm-hmm. but towards things that are good for them, like things they want, things that you're working towards together, like yeah. your student, you know, if it's your art practice or whatever. So you're, you might find yourself on multiple lines of this, you know, yeah. or, you know, also I, I think there's probably other contributing scenarios in ways in which we come about feeling like an imposter that I don't think we've covered, you know, mm. um, I can imagine. So I'd be, I mean, I definitely would, Love to hear more because I'd like to be able to teach better when it comes to caring for students uh, that might be wrestling with this for subsequent generations. You know, I mean, I, 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 I can we've talked about this other ways, but I can imagine the practice of being disembodied from so much of our life makes us feel fraudulent when we're dealing in in, in an embodied situation. Yeah. You know, so when we're, our mental exercise is always on the train of, of, uh, you know, digital reality all the time. 
uh, that can promote a greater sense of inauthenticity within ourselves, not, 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 you know, not the other. So, yeah. I mean, not going to go into that, but I can imagine that being the case is like another scenario, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And with, with all of this, um, it, it, it's strange. Um, you know, we both teach, fre- teach freshmen. Um, and so we've got folks who are kind of for the first time stepping into a trajectory that they have chosen, right? right. Cause they're, you know, they're done with uh, high school where everything's kind of been plotted out for them. Um, but now they're in a spot where they say, oh, I, I could actually go this way or that way. Um, and I've had students tell me in the past, they're like, you know, it made me, it made me feel very comfortable that you told me it was okay to say, I don't know. Right. And you know, that, that, um, that some of their feelings of like imposter syndrome stuff were coming from the fact that they felt like they always had to have the answer. Yeah. And so I tell them, I'm like, yeah, it's okay to say you don't know. That's completely fine because I mean, if you look traditionally, historically, however you look at it, that place of, I don't know, is always the first step of learning. That's right. right? It's the opportunity place. And Um, so with a lot of the students, I'm like, it's cool to say you don't know, but it's not cool to say, I don't know. And I'm just going to sit here. Yeah. Like that's different. I mean, especially right. within an educational yeah, environment. Yeah, I mean, you can do whatever you want, but with an educational environment, ideally, yeah. You know, you, you if there's an opportunity to know, then and it's relevant, then you should go ahead and go for it. Yeah, I mean, cuz like if you're lost in the middle of the woods, um nobody's going to be like probably the best way to deal with the situation is to sit here. Isn't that a Jefferson Starship song? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I, I don't have the full compendium <laughs> of, their, of their songs in my I don't head, know if everybody knows enough. how hard of a Jefferson Starship fan you are, but they do now. You know, I mean, the, the full Jefferson Starship uh, tribute band outfit that I have on right now I, I know is that's, really misleading because yeah, I yeah. couldn't name. Well, the fact that it's got a zipper and it's a singlet is throwing me off hard. <laughs> but but it's shorts, so it's right. okay. Well, I know. <laughs> Star Spangled Socks. It's getting weird in here. Yeah, sorry. I just try to just try to bring the fun, man. Yeah, you do. Just try to. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like you know, as a, as a good kind of uh, uh, departure point today. Uh, I mean, we've talked through a lot of things in terms of the the ways that these things live out there and yep. the way we think about them. Um, but like, if you're in it and you're listening and you're like, it's really great that you're telling me about the thought processes and all this other stuff and maybe some philosophical understandings. Like, but if you could give me like one or two like points to just say, Hey, here's a practical thing you can start doing. Even if you feel like it's turning wheels. I mean, I've got a couple things I could think of. Go for it. Um, eat oatmeal, <laughs> eat oatmeal. It always gets things moving. It warms you up. <laughs> it does. And, uh, it gives you a sense of fullness. Yeah. A and if, steamy sense of fullness. And if you're like, I'm not a big oatmeal fan, just, uh, shoot me an email. Correct. Gareth at chocolate I've got a great recipe for yep. you, but some other things okay. <laughs> that are practical matters. Um, and this may just be because this year for 2020, one thing I really want to do is just get people reading more books. Mm-hmm. It's like, like put down the brushes, put down the laptop and like, go, go read something. Right. You know, and I'm, I'm and something that's 2020 roughly, vision, something that's roughly helpful. Right. You know, it's not, you know, I'm not telling you to go read something completely different. Like, Oh, here's a book on neuroscience because yeah. I'm a sculptor. Yeah. Like, Honestly, like find something that's helpful, you know, get, get another thought, which is probably another way of saying like incorporate somebody else's, um, words and things into your, your time that may feel a bit too myopic. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I I try to write down 
I try to brave locating where some of your desires are and what you hope to get. And like try your best not to lie to yourself about why you want it. Yeah. Try to stare down your your most base desires. You know, whatever that is, approval, love, whatever it is. Try to really look at what your most base desires are and square it with what you're doing and see how sensible they are next to each other, just to yourself. And then if you're brave enough, then share it with a friend. Um, And uh, maybe do it for a couple weeks. Yeah. Just really look at, you know, um, it's like look at your, how much money you make a month and look at how much you're spending. You know, are you spending uh, in your, aspirations more than you make yeah it's a good barometer yeah so like um get a feel for how how much you expect versus how much you do um and if there's a wide gap try to close close it Mm -hmm. try to close the gap so spend less or you know spend less and make more yeah metaphorically speaking as an artist um and temper your expectations um so one thing that I've been doing uh, personally, because it's been such an incredible and crazy year, is I am just, it sounds so cliche, but I really am consciously trying to smile more. So where, where that comes from for me is with like my kids, just yeah. for me, um, because they, they induce a lot of delight. So I'm, what I would say for you is like, you know, you know, you're not married, no kids, different life trajectory, whatever. Find things that um, that are delightful that you don't have to possess. Mm. You know, what what in your life is delightful that you don't have to possess, and and spend a little more time delighting in it without possessing it. Yeah, um, would be kind of a a couple thoughts. Yeah, my next one is um, I, I'm a big fan of the one thing critique. You uh-huh. know, so you. Uh, we tend to have like we tend to use blankets for things and you know, how how we describe something, how we define something, um, how we critique things. Um, but I find it useful to have one thing critiques and just say, hey, if looking at this, there's one thing you can critique. What would it be? And it gets us to some very specifics. And so um, to, to recognize and realize from what we've been talking about today that when we get into a space with imposter syndrome, a lot of the times we will use giant blanket statements like, Oh, you're terrible. You're not doing it. You're yeah. lazy. You're, yeah, you know, yeah. these are the ways we beat ourselves up. Right. But to sit there and say, okay, if, if that's where you find yourself, then say, well, critique one thing like, mm-hmm. and be specific Yeah. and say, you know, so don't say you're lazy. Say you haven't made anything in the last three months. Mm-hmm. Well, once I say that I've actually started to plot a terrain Mm. By plotting that terrain, I can start to navigate it better. And so then it's something where, okay, I may not be able to change the way I feel about being an imposter right now, Mm -hmm. but I can make strides towards making one thing Mm -hmm. if that's the thing that I've critiqued. You know, and I think that's always helpful because every every journey starts with a few steps. And so, um, you know, there is something about, you know, starting small. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, and also assuming if you're successful and that's why you feel like a fraud then yeah. um, bring your successes down to size, mm-hmm. um, scale them down a little bit. So really see them for the, su- the successful outcome that they are, but don't pressurize them to carry more weight than they should because mm-hmm. that's how you feel detached from them. They're, mm-hmm. they're overpressurized. And so uh, try to look at like how it is that some, like 
a big thing for me started, I start, okay, so in order for me to actually show art and kind of get out from under this, there are several things that happened. One of them was though, I, I just started by giving people paintings. Um, there was just a, a season where I was in my life where I was like, you know what? I've been so busy holding on to everything out of self doubt and, you know, with success, um, that, uh, I wouldn't let anybody have an experience with my work that that was their own. So the first step for me was just letting people have that experience. Like, so if someone likes something or express interest, I actually had to start from the place of just giving it, giving it away. Um, yeah, because I had, I had to be super cool with someone else's delight in something I made that I no longer possessed, which mm. is why I said, learn to delight in things that you don't possess. Yeah. Um, and so what I did was I started to acquire a relationship with an acquaintance with relationship with other people's delight in my work on their terms and on the work's terms. And I, I became very, very, uh, attuned to it being out of my hands. And I started to acquire a feeling for that, a sense for that, an appreciation of that as a major part in the equation of being a maker. Yeah. And that, that's been uh, really helpful for me. That's great. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, you know, in closing, um, we're probably never going to get away from imposter syndrome. Nope. It's going to stick with us. Um, so the worst thing we can do is ignore it. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it does devastating things to us when we do. Um, it's how but, you work through it. But equally bad is to put too much emphasis on it. Yeah. Right. And to start fetishizing it. That's right. So, um, you know, as with all these discussions, this is a start. You know, we, mm -hmm. we'd love for uh, y'all to give us feedback uh, to talk more about it. Share your stories, you know, because um, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's literally what we were talking about in this episode. Right? Yep. Talk about these things with folks. Uh, get some community going on. Send us some questions. We want questions. We yeah. want to talk. Please let us know. So um, as always, you're a fantastic audience. We appreciate you so much. You're amazing. And uh, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottom.